guilty. It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Amen. Probably a well-known passage of scripture, probably one that you have heard if you've been around church, probably even heard it taught on. There's not gonna be anything like deep revelation this morning. We're just gonna unpack God's word together and seek to apply it to our lives really practically. Is that okay? I hope so, because that's what we're gonna do. Um, I don't know if you understand kids. Um, I'm trying to, but they're a bit of a mystery. what we've got at the moment is a son who you've seen this morning. My, my daughter and wife are tucked up in bed with the lurgy, but uh, my son, you'll see, he is at the stage of testing boundaries, okay? It doesn't seem to end. I mean, I still test boundaries now, and I'm 30, right? Um, so I don't think we get past it. I just think we kind of frame it differently, but he is very much testing the boundaries. Like when you say no, he's asking why. Uh, so I, was, I, I cooked something on the hob the other day, uh, some spaghetti, and I put it on the side, and I said, don't touch it. I walk around, and I look back, and he's doing this to it, just seeing how long he can touch it for before it burns. I mean, why? I've no idea, but you say no, and they want to test the boundaries. And I, I think the, the, the reason that they test the boundaries is because they, they just want to kind of push you, but they also just kind of want to think, is this true? Is this actually why, you know, he's saying no, but it, it, do I, do I, do, is it really a no? And, and what happens is when we say no to Reuben, in all honesty, sometimes he can kick off. I can say it because it's him and he's out there, but he can kick off. And sometimes we have to say, Reuben, it's time to go to your bedroom and have a timeout. And that's just what we've got to do. Uh, and I wonder if he's kicking off because he thinks that which we're saying no to is actually what will make, he thinks will make his life better, easier, simpler, simpler or happier. So he thinks if I can have this, like if I can have the iPad and watch the football highlights from yesterday at six o'clock in the morning and come and wake daddy up for it, I'm just making up a hypothetical situation there. <laughs> and I say, no Reuben, it's six o'clock in the morning, there's no football on, you can't watch it. And he kicks off because he thinks that if I get that, that my life will be happier, my life will be simpler, I'll be getting what I want. And I have to be honest, nine times out of 10, I'm a good Christian dad, and I keep my patience, and I'm calm, cool, and collected. (laughs) But I'm also human, and sometimes I kick off too, and I get angry with him. It's bad, isn't it, I know, but it's the truth. And I wonder in those moments when I kick off, It's because I've perceived that he is stopping my life being happier, simpler, what I want. It feels like he's stopping that, and so I kick off back. Why am I telling you this? Because Jesus has just told those in the crowd that are seeking to follow him that you will face difficulties. Life will be tough following me. The decision to follow me isn't the upward curve all the time, the mountaintop experience. There are moments when you will face things that you don't want to face in this life. Persecution. You know, as I said, we heard from Open Doors uh, a couple of weeks ago about people being put in prison and losing their lives for their faith. We don't live in a nation where that is a reality, but I'm sure there's other things that we encounter. Maybe for following Jesus, things we lose out on. And we can, we can live in those moments and think that life is hard. And we can kick off 
You know, whenever we're threatened, they say there's three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. They're the three mo- things that humanity, it's the human condition, it's how we're wired, that when we face a threat, we will either fight back and kick off. So when Ruben's, I perceive him to be not giving me the life that I want, the, ble- the happier, simpler life, I can kick off, fight, or I can run away and I can flee and hide in the toilet and lock the door because it's the only quiet room in the house. Or I can freeze, just stand there, lost, not knowing what to do. And when we perceive a threat, that's what psychologists and uh, and people that understand the human psyche, that's what they say we do, flight, fight, or freeze. Jesus says, there's another way. When When you face a threat, when life comes against you, when people stand against you, I don't want you to fight, I don't want you to flight, and I don't want you to freeze, I want you to be salt and light. There's a different way that we get to live. And as the people of God, those that are following Jesus in the room this morning, his invitation is that we would live as salt and light in a world that stands against us. So what does it mean to be salt and light? That's all I'm gonna unpack this morning. Two things, salt and light. I may throw a third one in if we've got time because there is another metaphor hidden in there. But these metaphors that Jesus uses, salt. The first illustration that Jesus uses to depict our relationship with the world is salt. Seems like an odd one, doesn't it? Salt, like we've got, uh, I don't know if you call it a salt pig or whatever they're called that sits on the side and it's like a trough with salt in it. And you just, like we've got one of those in our kitchen and we just throw salt on stuff when we want to. Uh, It's just there and it's available. But salt, in Jesus' day, salt was a precious commodity. It was something that was used to pay salaries. There's, there's records of Roman soldiers going to get their salary, and as they would queue up at the table to get their salary, they wouldn't get money, they'd get salt. Imagine that at the end of the month. You're going, you get your paycheck. There you go, sir. Bonk. Kilo of salt for you. But it's where we get the phrase, we don't use it very much these days, but it's where we get the phrase, you're worth your salt. That you were worth your salt. Salt was precious. Can I say the call of Jesus to be salt and light in the world is that you're salt. You're a precious commodity in the kingdom of God. That these outcasts, these broken people that are listening to Jesus told that they're nobodies, he's saying actually in the kingdom of God you are precious. And we can feel that when we're facing a threat, when life is against us, we can think we're anything but precious. God has disappeared, he's gone. I can't see him, I can't taste him. I don't even know who he is anymore. I'm lost in all of this. I can't be precious. And yet he's saying, you are precious. You're a precious commodity in the kingdom of God. The world may not get you and it may even be against you, but you need to know that you are precious. Salt's also used for flavoring. We was, uh, some of our uh, gospel community, um, we go to the pub on a Thursday evening, and uh, Matt, he likes salt, doesn't he? Goodness me. They brought us some, um, uh, what do you call them? Potato wedges, uh, just as a gift, because we're there quite regularly, and, uh, and they put them on the side, and they said, they're just for you to enjoy, and we're like, free potato wedges, fantastic. So we're all diving in. Matt undoes the salt, one sachet of salt, on one side of the, uh, of, the, of the, I'm grassing him up now to his wife. Don't tell him I told you this. A whole sachet of salt on one side of the potato wedge, and he kind of pushed it in and then flipped it over and put another sachet on the other side. Couldn't believe it. But salt, I mean, I, I think, we'll get into this, but I think sometimes there can be too much salt. <laughs> but he puts, salt, it enhances a flavor of something, doesn't it? When you add salt to something, it enhances the flavor. You add too much salt and all you taste is the salt. 
You add too much salt and all you taste is the salt. Sometimes we can be a little bit overwhelming for people. But the invitation is to be salt that brings out the flavors. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase picks up on this idea in these verses. He says, let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. I love that. That we would be the ones that are seasoning. As, as Rob spoke earlier on about a life and life in all its fullness of celebration, that we would start to see the kingdom of God and we'd be the ones that are, are, are enhancing that flavor in the places and the spaces we find ourselves. We'd be bringing out those flavors. If you lose your saltiness, how will it taste? Um, it, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up on the garbage. I wonder, who wants a bag of crisps? Bag of crisps? Oh, it's not a catch. You can, in fact, I've got enough for everybody to have a bag of crisps. So if you want to pass those around, please. They're a bag of crisps. I've got my own bag of crisps right here. So when you get your bag of crisps, feel free to open the bag of crisps and uh, have a munch. See what you think. Oh my goodness, I need a drink. Some of you are already ahead of me. Don't take the little salt chassis out yet. Just try one of the crisps as it is. Come to church, have a bag of crisps. It's like a pantomime, isn't it? I'll get the water gun out in a minute. And, oh no, it's not. So open up your crisps. Um, Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I suppose uh, everything has to come with a warning these days, don't they? Are vegans allowed these? or uh, Not vegans. Um, gluten. No, don't eat these. Got gluten in. So open up. Have a taste. Do you like the taste? Yes. yes. Thank you. That's the right answer. <laughs> it's a bit grim, isn't it? Just, just like fried potato. Okay, take the little salt chassis out. Some of you remember these crisps because this is how they all used to be, wasn't it? Just like the good old days, Rob. <laughs> now take your little salt sachet, open that up and just shake it in. Sound like Taylor Swift. Give it a little shake. And then taste a crisp. Oh, that's a big one, I'm not having that one. How much nicer are they? Oh, I could eat them. Oh, give me a few moments. I haven't had any breakfast. Mmm. Notice the difference in the taste? Salt is there to bring out the flavor. You add it to something and it brings out the flavor. Do you notice as you put the salt in and shook it, it spread, didn't it? Scattered across the crisps. Didn't just put it all on one crisp, like one potato wedge, and eat it like that. You scatter. 
See, as the church, we're a scattered people. Being the salt of the earth means we're scattered into the spaces and places around this town, this village, in the villages and, uh, and, and roads of, of Stratford-on-Avon. That's why as a church, what we're doing is we're orientating ourselves around, yes, the gathered expression of the church. We're also saying, what does it look like when we're the scattered church? When we start to realize that there's other people around us that, that may be the same age or live in the same street, what does it look like when we're scattered and we start to bring the salt, uh, bring the, be the salt of the earth and bring out the God flavors with a certain people group? People that are similar to us or a stage of life at us or, or we live in the same location. What does it start to look like as a church when we give space for that to start happening as well? Instead of assuming it will happen, we give time and space for it to happen, to be the salt of the earth. Yes, as a gathered community that come together and celebrate and worship together and sit under the teaching of God's word, absolutely. But what does it look like when we start to be missional? And we start to say, we're working alongside each other as the scattered church to be the salt of the earth, bringing out the God flavors. I remember, sorry, I've got crisps in my teeth now. <laughs> I remember being in northern Pakistan just after the earthquake in 2010. Uh, I was privileged enough to be able to be giving out aid from funds that had been raised by our Elim churches. And so we're in northern Pakistan. We, we found out later that we were actually in the village where Osama bin Laden was found. So that was good. Um, and so we're giving out aid. And um, I remember so vividly, um, we were giving out the aid primarily to Muslims. 97, 98% of Pakistan is Muslim. And we're giving out this aid, and I remember one Muslim leader speaking to our group, and he said this, I should hate you with everything within me, but I can't. I can't because of all the good you're doing to my brothers and sisters who have suffered. I should hate you, everything within me says I should hate you, but I can't. See, Christians being in someone's life should be good for them bringing out the God flavors, revealing the vast openness of the kingdom, not reminding everybody why they're excluded, but saying Jesus has come for you and he loves you. Reminding people what it means to be blessed. So salt, it's a metaphor that means it's precious, it enhances the flavor. And probably the most primary reason in Jesus' day was because salt was used for preserving it kept things good. People didn't have fridges and freezers like we do, so they would have meat and it would need to be preserved and to be stopped from going bad. See, all too often, Christians are the ones that are known for being busy, for blaming a dark world for being dark, that we miss our purpose in being in the world, which is to stop it going bad. To be a people of justice, standing up for the poor, the refugees, standing up for the environment. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. God cares about his creation. Jesus is going to return and make all things new. I wonder if we could be busy about making this a space that's fit for the coming king. For salt to preserve the meat, it has to be in contact with the meat. You don't have the meat over here and then go, right, let's just preserve it over here with this salt and we'll do really well. The meat will go bad. It has to be in contact we might, when we face a threat or when the world seems like it's going against our worldview and the way that, that God would call us to live, we can be tempted in that threat to fight, to flight, or flee, or freeze, sorry. But the invitation is to be salt, to be in contact with that which needs preserving. So salt means going out knowing we're precious. 
bringing out the God flavors and preserving. And if we don't do it well, Jesus says in verse 13, but if the salt should lose its tastiness, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. See, the other use for salt was in the temple. They would use it as offerings for God. And what happened is, um, when, when salt had lost its, its saltiness in the temple and it had been used before, then what the, uh, the Talmud, which is sort of an unpacking of Jewish teaching, it says that the, the priests, they would take that salt and they would throw it on the steps of the temple. And when it rained, the priests could still walk up the steps and not slip. The salt would act like grit. In other words, when that salt was no longer fit for purpose, it was useless. When it was not doing what it was created for, it became useless. I think some of this is lost in that verse when it says, if the salt should lose its taste, how could it be made salty? That word taste, in other, in other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, that exact word taste is actually translated fall or moron. So in Matthew 5, 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool, it's the same word as taste, will be liable to the fire of hell. Again in uh, chapter 7, verse 26, and anyone who hears these words of mine and does not um, do them is like a foolish man, taste, who built his house on the sand. So it would seem that the Greek idea of this word, uh, uh, taste, which is also foolish, is that when a substance ceases to fulfill its reason for existence, it becomes a fool. When we cease to live out our existence, that which we were created for, we become foolish. You're blessed, you're part of God's kingdom, now go and be salt. Scattered into the world, knowing you're precious, bringing out the God flavors, being close enough to those around you that you can uh, show them a way of living and in, and in order for it to stop going bad. That's the kind of offering. No longer salt in the temple, but we are the salt. The offering to God to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, salt of the earth. So that's the first one, salt of the earth. Second metaphor that Jesus uses is light. You are the light of the world. Wow. That's both a compliment and a responsibility. So you are the light of the world, verse 14. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus says that you are the light of the world. It's interesting because in John 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But now he calls his followers to be the light of the world. Such a union. Such a union with us and Christ. John 14 speaks into this union that as he prays over his disciples, he prays that they would be one as he and the Father are one. That Christ in us, the hope of glory, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That Christ is the light of the world. And it's not uncommon actually for the followers of a rabbi in Jesus' day to call their rabbi the light of the world. They would say, my rabbi, he's the light of the world. But what Jesus does is he says, my followers are the light of the world. Go and shine. It's a compliment and a responsibility. Take a look around. Just look around the room right now. 
at each other. You're the light of the world. We're it. Not just us, I'm not elitist. Other followers of Jesus in Stratford-on-Avon, in Warwickshire, in the UK, globally. We're the light of the world. It's a compliment and a responsibility. Got something else to give out. I'm doing, I'm doing some tangible learning this morning, is that all right? Do you wanna hand some of those out, Rob? Yeah. We've gone safety, so you can't light them, sadly, but there's some candles for you. So they're being handed out. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. This isn't a challenge to become the light of the world. Jesus says, you already are the light of the world. As a follower of Jesus, you are the light of the world. It's not, I hope you become the light of the world. Jesus isn't setting a thing to say, you've got to work towards this. You've got to muster up all the energy you can and I hope you become the light of the world. Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. If you're following Jesus this morning in this room, you are the light of the world. Now, as I look at a light, it can either be a good light or it can be a bad light. The kind of light that Jesus had would have been a small little oil lamp, little ceramic oil lamp, a little wick in the one end, and the oil fed the lamp. And it would have been a simple, steady, consistent source of light. Probably on its own, not doing very much. In a, a room this size, if it was completely black and you had just one of those little lights that, that Jesus would have had in his day, it would sit on a corner and it would probably illuminate a little bit around it. But then you start to have a few of those lights and it can start to dispel the darkness. It doesn't fight against the darkness, it doesn't flee from the darkness, it doesn't freeze in the darkness, it shines through the darkness. How? How, how do we as the light of the world shine through the darkness? Well, in verse 16, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Paul picks up this exact same theme in Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, let me read it to you, 5 verse 8. It says, you who were once in darkness, but now are the light in the Lord, walk as children in the light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitlessness works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore he said, get up, sleep, arise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. Do you see the similarity? Shine as the light of the world, good works. Walk as children of the light in the Lord, living in all righteousness and truth. Paul and Jesus are speaking about how we get to live in this world that we get to be consistently, steadily living towards doing good. Now let me give you a, a note of caution. Doing good works is not about how we get right with God. Paul and Jesus are not speaking to people about how we get right with God. He's not saying you need to be a little bit more saltier or you need to shine a little bit brighter 
and then it'll be all good. And then you can be the children of the light. Jesus in Matthew 5 and Paul in Ephesians 5 are saying, this is how we get to live once we've been made right with God. That the way we're made right with God is through what Jesus has done for us. In his death, burial, and resurrection, that he lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death. And in that moment on the cross, all of our sin was placed on him and he who knew no sin became sin so we could become right with God. And he went to the grave and he took that to the grave and he took all of our sin to the grave that those who trust and believe in him and declare him as Lord and Savior, our sin gets put onto him. And in that moment, there is a moment of victory as he rises from the dead and our sin gets to stay in the grave and we're risen with him. And he's ascended to the Father and one day he will return and make all things new. But in between the resurrection and the return, we get to live as children walking in the light as the light of the world. In other words, we are, we're not doing good works in order to be made right, but we're made right through Jesus in order to do good works. So please, I don't want you to confuse the good works that Jesus speaks about because if you start to think at this early part of the Sermon on the Mount that I've just got to do more and be good uh, and, make, it on my, and make, it, uh, make God pleased with me, then you're going to read sections of the Sermon on the Mount really wrong. So this is how we live as those that are part of the kingdom having been made right with God. And it looks like doing good. Let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. See, the purpose of a light is to shine. For a light to be of any use, it has to shine. So your little candle, if you haven't already, why don't you just put it on? It didn't serve much good just sitting there. Have a look at that light. Can you see it? Is, it, is everyone's working? Good, if you've got one that's not working, don't take it personally, it's just a glitch. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a moment of condemnation, I can give you another one, don't panic. <laughs> what I want you to do now is as you look at that candle, just put your hand over it. This is nothing deep. We're doing kids' church in the main room today. What happens to that light? Can't see it. So there's absolutely no purpose. You see, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather they put on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. So you can take a light and you can hide it. It is possible to have a light and hide it. We're doing it right now. But lamps in Jesus' day, they were expensive, run by olive oil. Olive oil was very expensive, it was costly. We probably know more now than ever how costly it is to run a light. It was expensive. To light a lamp and then hide it would be foolish. The light is not serving its purpose. A huge waste of money. A hidden light has no use and no impact. It's a complete waste of time. But as you take your hand off, a light that is visible, present, and shines before others, the scriptures say. This is not a harsh light that's shining at you. The scriptures do not say, be the light of the world and shine at man. So shine before, shine before men. The picture here is that we're not so bright that we show how dark everybody else is. The picture is that our light illuminates the way for others to walk. That as the people of God, we live in a way that society sees is completely different. 
So don't be surprised if we look completely different to society. But we start to shine away and live in a way. And it can, for some, not for all, because God gives us the free choice of choosing him or rejecting him. But for some, they will choose to walk in that way because they see the light before them as we illuminate it. The path towards life and life in all its fullness. To have Stratford-on-Avon and all its towns and villages experiencing life that God invites us to, we have to be the people that shine before men. 30 seconds, and then we're going to, well, then we're going to the conclusion, which is another 40 minutes, but 30 seconds. Let me give you just one other metaphor that's being used in this passage. So we've got salt, we've got light. Sadly, I've got nothing to give out for this one because I couldn't give you all a city, I'm afraid. (laughs) But the third metaphor that Jesus touches on is a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. See, the city that cannot be hidden is illuminated in the daytime because they would whitewash the city walls and the sun would reflect off the city. They even think that as Jesus is speaking, there's a village that's up on the hillside that he might even be referencing. And so people are looking up the hill and seeing this city on a hill. And at nighttime, those small lamps that are put around the city shine in the darkness. In a world with no electricity, no attempt is made to hide that city. It's not ashamed of being in its location, not ashamed of being seen. In fact, it is high on a hill to guide the traveler who is seeking to find their way home. Church, is that the call? That we would live in such a way that we can shine brightly, bringing out the God flavors, preserving the world around us the way God called us to, that those that are seeking would be able to find their way home and find the wide open arms of the Father that's running towards them. To be salt and light. Ben, will you come up for me, mate? There you are. Just lull these beautiful people into thinking that we are nearly finished with something in a nice Holy Spirit key. Is that all right? What key are we going for? Ooh, not sure that was Holy Spirit. What key are we going for? D? Uh, D. D, that's a good Holy Spirit key. There it is. You can just feel his presence, can't you, with the D? It's just there. You know, I was reading this passage this week and it struck me how this passage speaks into every part of life. We like to departmentalize our lives, don't we? It's church, that's God, that's good. Work, got to do it, got to pay the bills. Don't really enjoy it. Perhaps you're blessed and you do enjoy it. And there's family and friends and the stuff that I want to do and the stuff that I've got to do. But in this passage of scripture, every area of our lives is covered. See, we can read these verses and think that being salt and light is solely about our presence in an unbelieving world. And it absolutely is. It's about our our presence as followers of Jesus in an unbelieving world, absolutely. But it's so much more than that. It's about our life with him. See, for salt to remain salty, we have to stay close to Jesus, the source. Abiding in the vine, to use another metaphor. Being a people who spend time in his presence, that were being changed and transformed by his presence. Not just having a few good days in a row, thinking, God, you're pleasing me at the moment because I'm nailing this shining and saltiness thing. The world doesn't need you on a good day. It needs Christ in you every day 
that only happens as we spend time in his presence. There's no shortcuts to that. As we do it, it impacts our whole life. The idea of the salt being an offering in the temple and when it's no longer fit for purpose, it throws. Reminding me of us as a church community, that we're called to be salt and light to each other. In our church community, living that life, shining before each other. Bringing out the God flavors for each other, preserving each other. Supporting each other. Being a city on a hill we're a city within a city we're a town within a town we're a village within a village we're a community within a community as Christians we're the called out ones within the spaces and places and communities that we live it's our street it's our neighbours put a lamp on its lampstand so it gives light to all who are in the home it's behind the closed doors of our own homes being salt and light to our children, to our spouse, to our relatives, to those that would come into our home that we host. It's a whole life. Shine your light before others. Being the light of the world. It's about who we are in our world. Our work, our friends, those we encounter with whatever you do in life. Maybe as I say those different areas of life and you just reflect on that in your own life, maybe there's one area you just feel like God is kind of saying, maybe, maybe that area I just need to invite God just to come and work in me because I know that in that circumstance, in that situation or those people or that street or my neighbours or my family or whatever it is, that person I struggle to get on with at work, maybe that's the salt and light moment. instead of it just being something out there to an unbelieving world we try and shine brightly and be salty it's actually my world and it's a little bit closer to home and it's about the reality of of how I live tomorrow the invitation in these moments is to always draw near to God not to run away not flight open ourselves up to him and he's working within us being salt and light so Zayn let me just give you something really practical from one of our values we value prayer here prayer encompassing our worshipping life singing as a community being with Jesus what does it look like for us to be salt and light this week in those, all those areas of our life? How about we pray this week? Instead of just talking about prayer, we actually become a people of prayer. That's a novel idea, isn't it? How about we take time to pray and instead of being who pray whether individually or corporately we start to be be a people that live out that prayer 
would happen if we wake up each morning this week and our prayer is this. God, who are you at work in that I'm going to encounter this week? Who are you at work in that I'll meet today? And then throughout your day, you just ask the Holy Spirit just to prompt you. People come across your path and it might be that one of those people you just think, oh, I prayed earlier on and that memory comes back and maybe that's just the Holy Spirit saying, why don't you go and ask that person if you can pray for them? It can be really awkward just to give you a warning but I wonder if there's something awesome that sits beyond the awkward about being salt and light. And it's a risk because we can go up to them and say, for some strange reason, I just, I, I believe in God. I just, is there anything I can pray for for you? And they can say yes. And you're like, great, what could I pray for? And you can pray for them. They might say no. Respect that. We're a light that shines before people, not in their face. Too much salt doesn't taste very good. You can go, that's no problem at all. You can walk away and you can pray for them anyway because they won't know. I wonder if this is what it starts to look like in a very small way just to start to be salt and light. And we start to take what we explore on a Sunday and we start to live it out in our whole life, being salt and light. So God, I pray for each one of us this morning. This simple message not deep enough for most, but more profoundly impacting our life than many of us care to admit. May we be filled with the Holy Spirit and be open to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to such a degree that without us even realizing it, we start to change the flavors of the places and spaces we work and live. They would shine brightly with a steady, consistent source of light that leads others to the life that you promised us, God. To the life of blessing, the life of the kingdom. Lord, I pray for each person in this room. May we be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in order to give you all the glory in order to see your kingdom come in Stratford-on-Avon as it is in heaven. 